wow, this sounds great to be able to build something where it could be actually saleable. But the part where the book talks about seller discretionary earnings, I never really got to that point. I was always running at break even at best and towards the end, a slight loss. And so I, I, I'd put my company's metrics into a calculator and the valuation that I got back was basically negative because the SDE was below zero. And I, I wasn't, therefore, it wasn't on my radar at all to sell it. I was thinking potentially in 2024, I'd done some projections and I, I thought that at that point, we would not only be break even, but quite profitable. So I was considering at that point that probably wouldn't sell it. It would be a, a great business for me. I'd be able to go full time on it. So I was very surprised when I got approached. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan. Have you ever felt defeated by how hard it is to grow a following online? If so, you're going to absolutely love today's guest who built and sold his SaaS company on the back of just 1,600 YouTube followers. But before we get there, our guest today references an article which was actually written by a former guest of the podcast, Rob Walling, on the stair-step approach to bootstrapping a company, which today's guest, Jeremy Nagel, found extremely valuable for him and his business. So I will link to that article in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you about today's guest, Jeremy Nagel, who built a small, passionate following making YouTube videos on how to get the most out of Zoho, which is a small CRM platform favored by many companies who are looking for an alternative to Salesforce. Now, Jeremy's YouTube following gave him a platform to start his business and eventually became the moat that gave him a defendable advantage when it came time to selling his company. Here to share with John Warlow today, the full story is Jeremy Nagel. Enjoy. Jeremy Nagel, welcome to Build Cell Radio. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you all away from Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a place I have visited on three occasions, and it's one of my favorite cities in the world. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to be chatting with you. Great to hear Tell me a little bit about the transition from consulting to starting this company, Smooth Messenger. What were you doing and how did you identify the opportunity? Mm. So with the consulting, I was consulting for a, a CRM called Zoho, which is, was relatively small at the time. I'd started in 2011 and it was quite ugly at that point. People considered it to be the poor man's version of Salesforce and most people didn't really go near it. But over the years, it grew in its uh, attractiveness, both in terms of the feature set and the way it looked, so that by 2015, it was quite a nice CRM and more people were So you were helping it. small businesses uh, kind of figure out how to, how to integrate Zoho CRM into their businesses? Is that, is that the kind of consulting you were doing? Yeah, I was customizing it for them. So I'd do it for a real estate company where oh, they cool. wanted to pull data out of the CRM, make a PDF that they could send to their clients those kind of more advanced integrations. And what I found was that quite a few of those clients were asking for similar functionality. I'd done a bunch of blog posts and YouTube videos around some of the requests that I often got. 
And the one that I heard from most frequently was doing round-robin lead assignment for sales teams where people wanted to make sure that when a lead came in, that it went to a, in an even distribution. Even though that was built into the platform, it didn't necessarily work the way people wanted it to. So I'd written some code and people kept on asking me, hey, I saw your blog post. I tried to do it, but I don't really know how to code. Can you do it for me? I probably had that about five times before I tweaked that, hang on, there could actually be a product here. Around that time, Zoho had released their Zoho Marketplace feature where an independent developer could go in, make it, bundle up some code and sell it as a plugin, similar to what has been on, say, the, the Shopify marketplace or the sure. Salesforce marketplace. We had 80 on, on the show uh, maybe six months ago out of South Africa, and he got on the, he, he was in the Shopify ecosystem, and there's lots of folks we've interviewed that were in the Salesforce ecosystem on their, in their marketplace. Mm. Uh, so you spotted Zoho's marketplace, and you're like, I could create this app for this platform. Is that, what you're, mm. is that how it sort of came about? Yeah, pretty much. And that I'd based it on what people had been asking for before rather than I, I'd tried to build SaaS products in the past where I just came up with an idea and tried to launch it and I got zero traction. So I thought this time around, I'll wait until people tell me what they want and build it based got on Got it. That. So the, ori the original product was this little round robin Mm. Uh, kind of feature or application which allowed a, a lead to be evenly distributed among a sales team. That's cool. Where does it go from there? From there, Zoho noticed that I had built this extension and I was one of the first people on Zoho Marketplace. And they'd seen that I'd got some traction with it, that the code was well written. And so they actually had another plugin themselves, an SMS plugin that they had built, which was built using the version one of the Zoho API. And they were getting rid of that API. So they needed to rebuild it. Didn't have the person power internally. And so they said, hey, Jeremy, could you take this over for us? But so was, they actually had the idea yeah. of an SMS. See, I have mixed feelings about this, Jeremy. I got to come clean on this because my cell phone is like my private domain, right? <laughs> like the only person I give my cell phone numbers to like my closest friends, my family, if they ever need to reach me in an emergency, my wife. And then all of a sudden, like a year ago, all these businesses start texting me and I'm like driving myself crazy. I'm like, how did you get my number? This is like this private domain that I don't want people, not domain in a real way, but like, this is my precious phone that I only want. My, and now I'm getting all these businesses texting me. And of course, I guess what businesses have figured out is that the, the intimacy of one's cell phone, in particular text messages, is such a rich environment to reach their customers and prospects, which is why they're all obviously wanting to do it. And so the app that you created was, as I understand it, a way for someone in the Zoho CRM platform to pull up a customer name or a prospect name up on their screen and say, instead of sending an email to them, which is easy to ignore, et cetera, you could send an SMS message. Have I got the product basically yeah. right? Yeah. And I mean, what you're describing- You are to blame for my selling of my phone. I'm coming after you in Melbourne. <laughs> I was going to say that as part of my terms and conditions, when people signed up, I said, have you got explicit opt-in from the people you're going to message? Because it's actually <laughs> against the law to, I don't know how oh, they really? got their phone, how they got okay. your phone number, but they're not really meant to be just, doing that unless you've signed yeah. a checkbox. Maybe you just, just didn't teasing. see that checkbox where it says, 
we give you permission to send as many SMSs to me as, as I like. Yeah, I'm just teasing you because of course, at Value Builder, we do the same thing because we <laughs> know it's such a valuable place to reach people is through tech. So I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you when I, when I say you're to blame. It's certainly a very powerful way to reach prospects and customers, obviously, albeit with kid gloves. And you've got to be mindful about when you choose to set an SMS versus a, uh, some other form of communication. But mm -hmm. this product sounds fascinating. And I want to dig into what it was like for you to go from consulting, presumably by the hour and by the project, to a product business. Because we've actually had a few entrepreneurs who have made this change. Most recently, a guy named Dave Darmanin, who built Hotjar. Uh, and he made the transition from consulting on you know, uh, conversion optimization to his heat map software. Uh, Jason Fried, of course, at Basecamp has a very famous example. He used to create websites and then realized he could create this project management software. So there are examples of people making this change from consulting to owning a product. But man, it's got a lot of minefields and obstacles because it's really a very different business model and a different way to think. What mm. was your experience in making this change? Mm. My experience was I, I didn't particularly enjoy consulting. I found it quite difficult to manage timelines and customer demands. So I was really thrilled when I started getting people paying a subscription for first advanced round robin and then smooth messenger. I really, I loved that feeling of being able to build something once and sure I'd get feature requests, but instead of having to do it in 10 different places, there was one place that I could make changes. And then if I made one change, I'd get 10 emails back saying, thank you. That was great. And I, that felt much more manageable for me that there were definitely challenges in terms of cash flow. Especially in the yeah, I want to talk about cash flow, but just explain to me before we get to cash flow what the what the business model was. So I'm a Zoho customer. I pay Zoho my few hundred dollars a month for the application. How do you get paid? Like, where's the what? What exactly happens? Like, who pays whom? What money for? If I want to have the Smooth Messenger app mm. extension, if you will. Yeah, so I it was on a SaaS basis where when people installed the plugin, they got a ten day free trial, and then they they are then charged. It was between fifteen and thirty nine dollars per month for access okay. to the extension. Okay, so you were you were effectively, uh, you, you know, susceptible to or exposed to the old adage of of a rising tide lifts all boats as as Zoho. Um, gain traction and you were a popular extension in the marketplace, you would benefit from that. Mm. But you were at the same time reliant, I guess, on the Zoho marketplace to sell the feature for you. Is that right? Yeah, a combination. I, I was lucky in that Zoho trusted me to, to give me this extension and they their customer support team was then recommending the plugin to people when they would request an SMS solution. And that I think was why didn't what, they just why didn't they just build it themselves? They I guess they didn't have the bandwidth at the time. And they they had other priorities with the CRM. Because there were also many different SMS providers and they didn't want to necessarily show allegiance just to one. 
because I was initially using one popular SMS gateway. Now we're with message media following the acquisition. And there are many other options. I think message media is the best, but Zoho didn't right. necessarily want to lock themselves in to one SMS vendor. Okay, because in the plumbing of, and I, I don't know anything about messaging clearly, but in the plumbing of all this, you're, you got to get the message from, you know, the Zoho CRM platform through the, the pipes of the internet. There's a gateway or some sort of, you know, you know, pipe that sends it to my cell phone effectively. And, yeah. and you were using one of those gateways and, yeah. and, and message media, the ultimate acquirer is one of those gateways and, but there are others and they didn't want to show allegiance or, you know, have a monopoly with only one gateway because there are many others. And, and that would, that would seem um, overly tilted towards one and give that, give Zoho obviously a uh, exposure or risk, I guess, to, to being overly exposed to one messaging platform. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That answers my question why they didn't just do it themselves. You're going to get into cash flow because consulting is a great cash business, right? You, you get a customer, they need to figure out how to integrate Zoho. You charge by the hour, by the project, you get your cash and it's, doesn't require any money, but building a product, in particular one where you're reliant on a platform to sell it for you, is is not cash flow positive. So how did you manage the cash? Mm. Initially, the build costs were relatively low. So I was able to manage that by taking some of the revenue from consulting and using that to pay for it, and also the revenue from the advanced round robin extension. And then I essentially operated at break even for 18 months or so where once how I much reached, did you invest in like a ballpark? How much did you invest either in time or money to create the, the smooth uh, messenger uh, messenger app like ballpark in terms of either your time or, or, or actual cash? I can say that the initial version, it was a build cost of $5,000. So not, not huge. Does that include your time? Not including my time. So okay. I had a and your time, like developer. what was your time worth? Uh, I, I probably put in maybe a hundred hours of developing it and testing it. The, and the expense was more once we launched and started getting more feature requests. That's when I started building a team and yeah, the costs started growing from that point onwards. St started to go up. But at that yeah. point, at least you had some revenue coming in, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I've heard from other entrepreneurs is, is the hardest part about making the switch from selling services to products is the temptation to be half pregnant, the temptation to continue to take the consulting jobs. And the problem with that is that they are uh, demanding, clients have deadlines, customers want it now, and they always overshadow and and you know the squeaky wheel gets the oil so to speak they're always more important the urgent is always you know getting prioritized over the important and the, the product always sits in the in the kind of top drawer of the entrepreneur that it never really gets worked on How, did did you experience the you know, the, the, that overwhelm from clients saying jeremy i want you on this project i need you on this project and how did you tune that out and and to give yourself the time and energy to really focus on the product Mm. I'm a big fan of Rob Walling's stair-stepping model, where he talks about that as the revenue from the product increases, you start to downgrade the amount of time you're spending on consulting. 
for me, I, I had a team doing the consulting, so I wasn't that involved in the day-to-day, but I did have a day job as well. And that's the part that I toned down over time. I was initially working five days a week when I started Smooth Messenger, and I toned it down to four days a week after about three months. And then by the end, when I sold it, I was working two days a week in my day job. Oh, wow. So you never actually got to zero in your day job. You were continuing. Yeah, not until I sold the business did I go down to zero. Got it. Of course, Rob Walling, for folks who are longtime listeners of this show, sold Drip. He was on the show back in, oh, I want to say 2020, a fantastic entrepreneur. And he has a great podcast as well, Startups for the Rest of Us and a conference, Microcontani. I mean, he's a, he's a great guy for folks to get to know if you haven't met him. But, uh, and we'll, we'll link to his stair-stepping kind of, uh, you know, uh, episode in the show notes at builtcell.com so folks can hear that sort of rationale. But, but you basically went from five days to four, four to three, and, and just get dedicated a day of your time to the product. Mm. Got it. As the revenue built, I was able to hire developers to help. And then the, the big thing for me, because a lot of the customers were in the US, it was really starting to cost me physical and mental health, trying to get up early enough to be able to do the customer service. So one of the critical hires was hiring a customer support person. And that was quite, quite painful in terms of putting the money there because previously I had been cash flow positive and then hiring the, the CS rep, that meant that I was barely break even anymore. But I'm so glad that I did that because it meant that I could sleep better at night. And also the number of customer reviews I started getting were way better when I had him on board. I think he generally a Did you hire somebody person. locally? Did you hire someone in North American time zone? So you yeah. can kind of play a little bit of arbitrage. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. What's the secret to training a customer service representative? Cause a lot of entrepreneurs, it's all in their head, right? And, and you know, your product better than anybody else. And it can be very challenging to basically extricate everything that is in your head into the mind of a customer service person. So what did you learn about training frontline customer service people? I learned that I got very lucky with the person that I hired, that I had tried out other people and that the learning curve seemed to be very slow with them. But with the the guy that I hired, within three days, he was handling calls on his own. And I, I had provided some content. My I'd, I had about probably 100 YouTube videos that I'd recorded explaining the product. I basically said to him, watch these you'll get an understanding of the product. He watched them and he had an understanding of the product. And he was at that point more capable than most of the customers. And over the years, he's now an expert and can handle pretty much anything customers throw at him. How did you structure, and again, if I ask you something, Jeremy, that you can't answer, I totally get it. But how did you structure his compensation where you know, he was becoming a bit of a linchpin for your company? He was a really important employee. Presumably, you 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 know you, you in your own words you got lucky so you never you probably didn't want to just replace him i mean did did he have variable comp was it you know tied to net promoter score or did you give him shares like how did you kind of retain him or incentivize him to stay with your company i didn't really do anything special i was paying him on an hourly basis and he was just happy to work with me happy to continue to build his skills i guess it's maybe that autonomy mastery framework where he felt like he was getting better over time and that he had some autonomy in terms of how he dealt with customers. 
and he he has generally continued to be happy and we're looking now at he's still with me we're looking at how he might be able to become a developer in the future that's an area he oh, wants cool. to go into awesome so talk about the platform risk i, I mentioned platform risk as a uh you know, something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs think about tying your, you know, uh, horse or wagon to one platform has both positives and negatives. Uh, um, we interviewed a guy from um, Beast Gear. I've forgotten uh, his name off the top of my head, but it'll be in the show notes. And uh, he talks about being really relying on Amazon to sell his workout equipment and how ultimately that depressed his valuation because at some point, like 90% of his revenue was coming from Amazon. A.D. Pinar also talked about dependency on the Shopify platform or marketplace because, you know, he was then relied on them and the, the whims of them. And, and I wonder how you thought about that platform risk. I mean, did you consciously think about it? Um, did you, did it keep you up at night? How did you how did you think through it in the context of what you were risking? It did definitely play on my mind. There were a few situations where Zoho changed their APIs without any warning. Often it was a mistake, and that completely bricked the extension. That that's terrifying because I literally can't do anything to fix it. I just have to beg Zoho, please go back and undo what you just did. And API calls, of course, for folks who are not developers listening to this, so the kind of way an outside application effectively communicates with another application. And if those are changed or shut down or broken, it causes basically the apps not to talk to each other. Am I getting that effectively yeah, right? Yeah, great summary. Yeah. It's like slicing a, a hole in the pipes. So that, yeah. that happened several times. And I... I felt a lot of concern about that, but also the advantage of being a single platform play is that I could go really deep with the marketing. I mentioned my YouTube videos and that was my main acquisition channel that I was basically, even though nothing like PewDiePie or any serious YouTuber, I was relatively well known with my YouTube videos, both about the SMS solution and just generally about Zoho. And I don't think I would have been able to have that depth in marketing had I spread myself across multiple platforms. Oh, that's interesting. So you created a YouTube channel to talk about how to use Zoho and maximize your effectiveness effectively using the Zoho platform. So people who are Zoho uh, customers or prospective customers would subscribe to your YouTube channel for how-to content. Yeah, and that built up trust. And they were. How many subscribers did you have? Not that many in the scheme of things. I have right now about 1,500, which sounds puny, but it, I talk to a lot of people who are trying out the extension and they'll often say, I love your videos. Thanks so much for producing them. So I think it, it creates trust. Even if they don't subscribe, maybe they've watched one or two and it might have helped them in a pickle they had with setting up a workflow rule, for example, in Zoho CRM. Isn't that interesting? I love this because a lot of people you know, hear about social media, like, you know, the whatever, TikTok and Instagram and, and YouTube. And they'll be like, yeah, but it takes like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers. I love the fact that you started this company on the backs of 1,500 subscribers, which is, I think, a little bit more manageable for people to get their head around. Like I think, you know, developing a list of 1,500 Twitter followers or email subscribers or YouTube subscribers, like that feels like something that 
a lot of folks listening could probably get their head around, right? Yeah, and I, and did I guess it very YouTube. Imperfectly. I what's that? I did it very imperfectly as well. I got started and I had a, a terrible microphone. My keyboard was really loud. I often got complaints in the comments saying, "You need to fix your audio," and. And I would never necessarily spend a lot of time with YouTube content. It would be more if it was a five-minute video. I'd probably spent 10 minutes total editing it and recording it. But that was sufficient. It didn't have to be perfect. But it probably also, in a funny way, built your trust to have the production values of the YouTube fairly basic. You, you know, Subscribers would know that you're not trying to make it all slick and try to sell them some snake oil. You were effectively being very authentic through YouTube and that probably elevated the trust that you had with them. So when you recommended the solution, it carried weight, I'm assuming. Yeah, let's, let's spin it that way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that. Got it. Okay, so you're building this thing up and I'm curious to know at what point did it occur to you that you might be building an asset that someone would want to buy? It never occurred to me. That was the funny thing. I'd read your book, Built to Sell, I think in 2019. And the impression I got was, wow, this sounds great to be able to build something where it could be actually saleable. But the part where the book talks about seller discretionary earnings, I never really got to that point. I was always running at break even at best and towards the end, a slight loss. And so I, I, I'd put my company's metrics into a calculator and the valuation that I got back was basically negative because the SDE was below zero. And I, I wasn't, therefore, it wasn't on my radar at all to sell it. I was thinking potentially in 2024, I'd done some projections and I, I thought that at that point, we would not only be break even, but quite profitable. So I was considering at that point that I probably wouldn't sell it. It would be a, a great business for me. I'd be able to go full-time on it. So I was very surprised when I got approached. I wasn't prepared for it at all. So SDE that Jeremy is referring to, of course, stands for Seller's Discretionary Earnings. And it's effectively an expression of profit that takes into consideration any sort of economic value you as the founder take out of the company. So it's used in smaller companies uh, as an expression of profit. And so what I'm hearing you say is, and you were still doing your, your day job on the side and running this product or feature at break even. You were investing in your customer service people and your developers so that kind of all the money was going out the other, other way. And eventually you were thinking, you know, a couple of years down the road, you might be at a point where it would be more profitable and therefore. So what changed? Did, did you get approached or what, what happened? Yeah, I got approached on LinkedIn in August 2021. A, someone from the corporate development team at Message Media reached out to me and basically sent me a message saying, we've just acquired a Salesforce plugin. We'd be interested in talking to you about your Zoho plugin. And that was quite... And it, a shock for me that someone would be interested in it. Very exciting, but a, an immediate feeling of being well out of my depth that I didn't really know how to handle the conversation that would follow. Mm-hmm. So, I, I started, so what happens next? I started contacting everyone I knew, asking for advice about how to handle it. Spoke to a few people. I reached out to some corporate advisors generally found those conversations very helpful 
in steering me towards resources, including your new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. I, I had a read of that, found that very useful. And I, I ended up, after talking to about five different advisors, I found one who I'd actually worked with in the past. He was a friend of mine and we'd worked on a business together in the past. And he's now a venture capitalist. So he is involved in quite a few high stakes negotiations. Ended up asking him to help me through the process. And that was amazing because I, I would have been not a very good negotiator. And I also probably wouldn't have put my best foot forward with the marketing materials that we presented to them. I didn't have a pitch deck or anything like that that would summarize the business. And Daniel helped me to prepare that so that when we went into that initial meeting, we were looking like it was actually, well, it was a decent business, but just showing it in its best light. What was the biggest change to the way you talked about the business and the way Daniel recommended you talk about the business, both in a meeting, but also in the, in the sim and all the preparation materials. Like what was Daniel kind of coaching you to do differently? There were probably two things. One was around <clears throat> self-deprecation that I, I can be quite self-deprecating and, and talk about things in not necessarily the most positive way. Whereas he would suggest that sure, maybe there are a few downsides. We, we can touch on them, but let's not emphasize them. And the second point was around the level of detail that I can sometimes provide too much detail. And especially we might touch on due diligence later, but that was a point that he suggested that I answer their questions, but not necessarily go beyond and volunteer additional information. And was Daniel in the meetings with you or did yeah. he just coach you in advance them? He was. Yeah. So I would generally wait for him to ask me to answer a question and allow him to do most of the talking. <laughs> it sounds like a like one of those law shows where you have the deposition and like the lawyer and the and the person convicted of murder. So it's like <laughs> there and they look look over at their lawyer and say, Can I answer that? And the lawyer <laughs> says, No, don't answer that. <laughs> so is that the kind of dynamic you had going with Daniel? Yeah, we often had a, a WhatsApp chat going and then we might <laughs> In the meeting. Yeah, that if there was a, a question that needed to be answered, we might send a message to each other and he would give me some tips on how to answer it. Interesting. And did that, did that not come across as somewhat disingenuous to the other side? Like there must've been these kind of awkward pauses while you're reading the WhatsApp and <laughs> waiting to talk. Like, did you, were you able to mask that or was it? Yeah, I think was so. it obvious I mean, them? I was still at the beginning of the meeting. I was happy to engage in small talk and got to know the, the people on the corporate development team pretty well. And I would answer any questions about, if it was clear that it was in my arena, if it was anything related to the technology, for example, we didn't need to have the WhatsApp pre-conversation. But Yeah. Did Daniel things. give you any sense of what your company might be worth? Like, did he give you any, uh, any sort of benchmarks as to like, you know, it, it might be worth X or Y times revenue or times profit? Or like, did he give you any sort of benchmarks to... Um, to think yeah. about? Yeah, as part of the preparation process, we went through a, an Excel spreadsheet to come up with a valuation. And that was based on some of the metrics around what private SaaS companies would sell for. So we basically went into the negotiations with the high side of that valuation. I can't give multiples or ranges or anything like that, but 
around the high side and then that we basically the other book that i read that i found helpful was never split the difference and there's an argument there to begin with a a very high price as an anchor which is basically the approach daniel took and then got it yeah chris boss with their split the difference that was acceptable for sure recommend we're able to to proceed at that point Got it. Got it. Okay. So you, Daniel is kind of coaching you to go in on the high side of the benchmarks out there. What sort, did, did he share with you what sources of data he used to come up with uh, valuation metrics for privately held SaaS companies? Because they're notoriously opaque, these transactions, right? Like it's very hard to, to find out what a, what a relatively small SaaS company would trade for. Um, of course, Andrew Gizdecki is, is trying to change that with his micro acquire platform. And I think he's doing a great job of, of getting uh, the market to be a little bit more fluid and liquid and transparent, but still it's hard. So did Daniel have a source to, uh, like what was his source for these benchmarks for small SaaS companies? I don't know. I can't remember the name of the company, but there was one where they had data from public SaaS acquisitions and than some data for private companies as well. They tended to be on the much larger scale. And I think that there's a tendency that the larger SaaS companies, the multiple will be much higher than when it's in the, the smaller sure. revenue range. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and of course, that can, that can, those multiples that, you know, are obviously reported by acquirers because the material for the public companies who buy them, so they have to report the multiple, but those are usually billion-dollar acquisitions, hundreds of millions of dollars. So I'm assuming uh, that those were on the high side of what you thought was realistic. Yeah. What was the reaction uh, from message media when – first of all, did you share on a preemptive basis what you thought was a, a reasonable price for the company using the Chris Voss technique of, of sort of putting an anchoring price out there? Did you start there? Yeah, I think – they had initially asked what would you sell it for and and daniel did give a, an anchor there at the high end yeah and we we weren't what, expecting it to to sell for that price because it it was basically at the the billion dollar company valuation level but the, i guess the the mindset that i had going in was that i wasn't expecting to sell it at that point so i wasn't necessarily desperate and i didn't I didn't really want to settle for a lower valuation when the company was still growing. Yeah, yeah. One of the dangers of using that technique, of course, is that if the number is so crazy, some acquirers will just disengage, right? They'll like, okay, Jeremy's nuts. <laughs> He's got like stars in his eyes and there's no way we're going to, you know, buy his business for that multiple. So he, he's not worth spending time with. Did, did, were you worried that by using that anchor price being so high that you might effectively lose um, message media as a potential acquirer? There was some concern around that, but Daniel had also looked for other potential buyers as well. So we, we were in discussions with a few parties and we figured that no need to, to get too worried about one particular party that we would see how things would go. Um, okay. 
So you were you were starting to see what other potential acquirers were out there. Did those did you go further with the other uh, companies, potential acquirers, and actually kind of meet with them, get letters of intent from them, or were they just names on a on a effectively a spreadsheet that you could go to if things with message media did not consummate? Yeah, we, we did go to, towards conversations and we did get an offer from two other parties. And that was helpful in terms of psychological posture, just knowing that there was a fallback. How did you interpret or evaluate the three offers? Like what was your way of, of sort of evaluating them? The, the main thing was actually around what it would be like for my customers because the, the fit with message media was perfect in that they had they had a lot of experience with other ecosystem integrations. They'd done Salesforce recently. They had HubSpot, Shopify. They really knew what they were doing because I was quite concerned with the, the other acquirers that it was more of an acqui-hire and that it wasn't necessarily that they cared about Zoho at all. They just wanted to see if they could bring my team and I over and that we would then potentially close down Sweet Messenger and we would work on something else. And I didn't really want to do that. I, I still feel now like I have unfinished work to do and I have a very close relationship with many of the customers where I've worked with them for a long time and they've been incredibly patient with the bugs we've had. So I wanted to make sure that the acquirer was going to look after the customers as well. And I felt that that was going to be the case with message media. Got it. I know we have to be a little bit sensitive to the size of the company, but is there, just for folks to get their head around, is there any sort of proxy you can use to, to uh, help people visualize how big Smooth Messenger was at this time? Like, are we talking, maybe I'll just give you ranges, like, are we talking, uh, you know, more than 50 employees, less than 50 employees. Uh, can, can you, are you able to share sort of any proxy for size to, to give people kind of a, a sense of, of how big this company was? Yeah, I, I can say five employees. So it okay. wasn't, wasn't so it's huge. a small team. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's helpful for sure. So you get these three offers and Message media looked the most compelling just given its experience integrating with other CRM platforms. They'd just done this integration with, with Salesforce, the granddaddy or the, the you know, thousand pound gorilla in this space. Mm. So you felt confident that your customers would be taken care of. From a, from a financial perspective, like how did the offers differ? Like, again, I know we can't get into the number, but can, we, can you share uh, like how big a range there would have been from high to low? Like, are we plus or minus 10% or were they huge gaps in terms of how they were valuing the business? Of the, so there were in total probably three or four parties we were talking to, two that actually got to the offer stage. One of the offers was probably 50% less and the other offer was quite similar. Got so it. it was okay. ultimately a choice between those final two and then it was a choice about what it would be like for me personally working for them. Because I, how did I didn't, the, sorry. How did the one that gave you the lower offer, like 50% less is obviously a huge gap. How did they think about valuation differently than the other two? Like why were they discounting the value of your business so much more than the other two that seemed to have a better sense of what it was worth? Like what was their rationale for discounting it to that, to that extent? 
My understanding is that it's mainly around the difference between a financial buyer and a strategic buyer, that for message media, it really makes sense because they can, the revenue that I was getting in terms of the access fee that people are paying for the integration, they can actually make more than that because they're selling the SMSs as well. So my customers, they're worth much more than I could ever get out of it. Whereas the the other buyer, they weren't so interested they, they weren't necessarily going to make that margin on the sms as well got it and that speaks to message media's thesis as to why they wanted to buy your company because they had other things to sell to these customers effectively yeah, yeah. that makes that makes sense what was the most surprising thing about the negotiation from there hmm surprising thing might be the amount of work required to actually get to an offer that we had due diligence down the track, but before due diligence, before the offer, there was pre-diligence and I had to provide quite a lot of information. We'd signed a a non-disclosure agreement at that point. So there was some degree of comfort around what I could share, but I, I wasn't expecting it to take. I think it took about a month or so before we got the, the first offer. And that was one thing that I wish I'd done differently that the reason was basically me not having clear enough records that because I had it all in one entity with the consulting as well. And I basically had one line item in my PL, which was smooth messenger R and D. And I hadn't really broken it down to how much was for the customer support rep, how much was the different SaaS apps, all those kind of things. And I had to redo my books essentially. Wow. From the ground up. And did you use a third party? Like, did you engage an accountant in, in that or did you do it yourself? Yeah, I had a bookkeeper and I basically, he had been fixing up my books from another bookkeeper in the past and there was just more fixing to do. Yeah, yeah, wow. Did you, I get the sense that, I mean, in your own admission, you were not planning to sell this business anytime soon and this kind of just came out of the blue. I guess, you know, I think from my perspective, I think at some point during the diligence when I'm getting all these questions, this litany of like Spanish Inquisition, I'm assuming that at some point you may have pulled up and said like, why am I doing this? This was never my plan. Why are you asking me all these questions? I thought you wanted to buy my business, not the other way around. Yeah, I actually, I I didn't mind the questions because it made me realize, oh, they're asking me this question. I haven't been doing it. I should actually be doing it if I'm, I, I know that this is recommended as a best practice. And so there were, even though it was a little bit uncomfortable having to dig through all of that information, I think it, my mindset was that even if the acquisition didn't go through, I would be aware of what would be needed to take the business to the next level. Because that's basically what they were asking, that was, I, was the business solid enough that they'd be able to take it on, that they'd have very high expectations about many aspects of the business. How did you and Daniel furnish these data requests without undermining your credibility or negotiation leverage. Like admittedly you had the books that were kind of, as we all have in some, you know, early days of a business, we're not worried about like how they, you know, look to outsiders. So we kind of do them in a fairly rudimentary way, but clearly you had to, you know, professionalize things pretty quickly. How did you insulate the, the potential buyer from 
the chaos that was going on behind the scenes. I'm, I'm reminded of like, what is that expression about like, you know, above the surface of the water, the duck looks like it's just kind of swimming along, but under, under the water, their feet are just going like crazy. And I'm getting the sense that there was a little bit of that going on with you. Were you able to keep a straight face with the acquire and, and kind of present professionally as though, you know, we've got it all put together, but in the background, you're, you're kind of scrambling or, or did they know you were scrambling effectively? I think it was evident that we were scrambling because <laughs> there were times where they would ask something and I had misunderstood it and I didn't have time to ask Daniel. So I'd provide an answer and it was not what they were asking. So that, can you give an example of something that like that, that, that maybe they asked that you, uh, again, I think the example listen. I'm thinking of is around tax treatment that I'd done it the right way, but I just misunderstood the question and that they had to ask several times until they got the answer that they were looking for. And not that I was fabricating an answer, but just that I needed to understand where I needed to look in my books in order to be able to answer that question. Yeah. But we were generally, I think the line that Daniel often used was, look, Jeremy, it's a, a young startup. It's, we haven't necessarily got the professionalism that you'd expect for a, a $10 million uh, revenue company, but this is the kind of, this is where it's at. And he, he wasn't expecting to sell. So we're doing the best we can, not so don't need to sell it. How would they, yeah. So what was there, did you ever get underneath their valuation methodology, meaning I know we can't talk about the number, but did, did you ever get a sense that they were valuing you on a multiple of revenue or a multiple of what they could potentially sell their customers? Like, did you ever get a sense of how they were coming up with the valuation that they put on the business? Yeah, I believe it was based on their business case that they'd done some projections of what they'd be able to offer to the existing customers and also the the market that would be untapped if they were able to get into Zoho. I think there was also a build versus buy decision for them that they, they'd realized that in order to establish a presence in the Zoho marketplace, they'd basically need to hire someone like me. And there aren't, aren't many people with my depth of knowledge in the Zoho ecosystem. There's also a quite... some difficulty in attracting the number of reviews that I had. That was one of the main things that they were looking for that in terms of apps on the marketplace, Smooth Messenger is actually the number four app in general, not just for SMS in terms of install count and reviews. There are, I think over 100 SMS apps on the marketplace now, but most of them, they maybe only have a hundred installs and one or two reviews. That's the, the challenge they were facing of how do you bridge that gap of launching their own product? Meanwhile, mine is already quite far along and it, it might be very difficult for them to ever reach that point. Yeah, that is a really cool insight because, of course, we talk a lot about monopoly control, but like, what is your moat? What makes it hard for you to compete with? For you, that was the Google review or the, the reviews on the, on the uh on these uh, Zoho marketplace. How yeah. many reviews did you have in total, roughly, ballpark? At the time of the acquisition, it was, I think, 96, which doesn't necessarily yeah. sound huge, but that's many more than most extensions on the marketplace. 
Yeah. yeah. And did you actively seek out uh, reviews as part of your business model or were they just kind of spontaneous? My secret tactic there was basically the customer support guy that after he would help a customer, he would ask at the end of the call if they were very happy and it was obvious that they were, could you leave a review? And that was typically when we would get reviews that people would often praise either him or me when we would help out on those support calls. Awesome. You're not the first person that I've, had, I've heard do exactly that. And it sounds kind of kludgy and old school, but it, it works because, again, to your point, you only need 96 people to, to write something to make a huge difference mm. in how you perform on a marketplace, uh, yeah. especially a smaller marketplace compared to, say, uh, a Salesforce marketplace, which, of course, would be bigger and you'd need to have more reviews to, to rank. But in, in, mm. uh, with Zoho, 96 was enough to make you the was it, were you, did I hear right to say the fourth? Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's amazing. Good for you. And hopefully Zoho's rising tide will lift those boats so that maybe we'll be 500 reviews in a couple of years and the yeah, install yeah. count will be much higher as well. And, and so clearly your deep integration with Zoho was an asset that message media was trying to leverage and your platform kind of reputation. Did they ever refer to the liability of being too dependent on one platform as a reason or rationale for a lower valuation? No, they didn't. Got it. It was, it, an asset it was something they, they that as a positive. when I was asked as part of pre-diligence to name a risk, that was one of the risks that I talked about that there could be a change that Zoho would make that would make it hard in the future. But that that's a, a business risk, essentially. And they were, they obviously see that the value in ecosystem integrations, that they're not concerned about it. And they've diversified to a certain extent by having all these different ecosystem partners. That's an interesting tactic that they played. So they asked you to identify, the seller to identify the potential risks to your business. Yeah. Interesting. That's a challenging question to, to stick handle your way around. What did, was that the only risk that you identified? I had some more. I, I can't talk about them, but okay. I nope. think with, nope. with every business's risks, say, yeah. I guess one I can talk about would just be say key personnel risk that I've talked about how great my customer support guy was, but I only had one of him. And yeah, I'm very glad that he stuck around and I hope he still sticks around long-term as well. I'll try to take good care of him. Good stuff. Are you ready for a lightning round of questions? Quick answer will do. I'd love to ask you a couple of things. So you had three offers. I'm sure you talked to lots of people through the years. What is the slimiest trick that's an acquirer tried to use on you to get your business for less than it was worth? Maybe I'm oblivious. I, I couldn't really tell if there was anything slimy. But, Let's yeah. ask Daniel. <laughs> I bet he might have an answer to that one. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest mistake that you made from the initial LinkedIn reach out from message media where the individual said, hey, you know, we just done this deal with Salesforce to the check clearing your bank account? So in that time frame, um, what was the biggest mistake you made that you'd love to kind of have a do-over on? I don't know if it's related necessarily to the acquisition process, but I, I had 
basically Murphy's Law happen during the acquisition process where after we'd signed the, the heads of agreement, I then had two security incidents. I had a major bug. I'd never had anything like that happen before that. Everything was pretty clear sailing. And all of a sudden, yeah, these really uncomfortable things that were going to upset customers happened. And I think I did it the right way that I handled the incident and I told Message Media about it. I was completely transparent that it, it was that that was something a mistake in terms of not having prevented those issues from happening earlier. But it sounds like you dealt with them head on and, and you didn't mm. make the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make, which is to sort of brush them under the rug or, or not reveal them. And that can come back to create all sorts of problems downstream. So it yeah. strikes me as you're the kind of guy that couldn't lie, even if you tried. So, <laughs> so I'm not surprised you handled it in a very transparent way. It, it, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. What was the lowest point emotionally you reached along that same journey that exit journey was there a point where it, you just reached an ebb uh where you felt really really low mm. there were two i'd name one is when i had that the the bug that affected customers i felt really bad about that because not only were customers very unhappy with me but I was concerned that the optics of that would make message media feel that it wasn't reliable enough and that they they wouldn't be willing to go ahead. So that that created major concern. But I think that experience has been quite pivotal because I then overcompensated and I made the platform so strong that it could never happen again. And now, now yeah, we're much more stable than we have been. And then the the other low point would be around Christmas. We were originally talking about having everything done and dusted by Christmas and we just didn't get there. We we got to, I think, the 19th of December. There were still amendments that my lawyers wanted to make to the share purchase agreement. And even though it would have been possible to do it before the 24th, if we really pushed hard, it just it didn't end up happening because Message Media's legal team was going on holidays and the finance team was going away. So that that was... I couldn't enjoy Christmas at all. I was just thinking, what if something else happens between now and when we actually sign the agreement? It was a big relief. I think it was, say, mid-January when we signed the agreement and then completed shortly after that. I could relax a little bit keep, after that. How did you keep the momentum in the deal? Because I think you're right, by the way, to be concerned that extended holiday period, especially in Australia, you guys go away for like a month at Christmas. Like it's <laughs> yeah. everybody's at the beach for like the entire month of January. Yeah. So like I can imagine that being a real concern. How did you make sure that momentum did not uh, slow down immediately following the Christmas break? Mm. I didn't necessarily feel like it was losing momentum that, there were multiple people involved. There was the corporate development team and they basically, they took very little leave and they were still in contact with me. And there were things relating to my employment contract and other, other issues. So I didn't feel like the deal had stalled. It was just the share purchase agreement where they had to wait for their lawyers to come back. Were you surprised at all when the specter of the bug and you know the, the security breach when that happened, 
were you surprised at how committed you had become to selling your company? Because if we go back a couple of months earlier, you're you're cruising along, you're thinking 2024, I'll have profit, maybe I'll sell then. All of a sudden, this deal becomes a thing, it takes yeah. on a life of its own. And here you are, the lowest point professionally, you're worried that it's not going to go through. Did you ever kind of scratch your head and said, how did I get so, so committed to this deal? Yeah, it's the sunk cost fallacy, I guess, that I've paid money to lawyers and accountants. And it's very hard to, to think about it going away. I, I how much were you into, do you think, for professional services fees, accountants, lawyers at that point? Like, How much would you have lost if you just kind of walked away? Uh, maybe, I think, 30000 Australian. Wow. Okay. So that's a significant chunk. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely, I, I had to dip into my own savings to pay for that. So it, it was depressing the idea that I'd have gone through this process and I could work, walk away worse off than I was before. Yeah. But that's the risk what was you the, take. What was the highest moment emotionally in the journey? Probably getting the offer. That, that, that was, I was very happy with the offer they gave and it, it felt real at that point that it was actually going to happen. This is the heads of terms? Yeah. As you prepared for your exit, what resources did you tap? You've already been very generous in, in, in mentioning uh, Built to Sell and the Art of Selling Your Business. So thank you for that uh, plug. Unnecessary, but uh, I'm grateful for it. What else did you uh, look at? Were there, oh, you mentioned Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference. We'll put that in the show notes for folks. It's a great book. It's also an audio version and there's lots of video out there as well. Was there anything else you 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 use to really educate yourself about this process? Yeah, two other things. One would be this podcast. I listened to probably about 10 episodes of Built to Sell Radio and I found that really helpful, especially there were some ones where other SaaS founders had sold their business and hearing about that process was very useful. I think there was one that I liked around a founder who was selling at a time when it was quite difficult and that he had a spinal injury and the, the posture there of selling at the at a difficult time, that was that was good for me to, to think about the posture that I wanted to have, that I needed to not be desperate, otherwise I would get a bad result. Yes. And we'll put that episode in in the links on, on your episode page as well. I think uh, I've forgotten the name of the individual, but I know the story that you're referencing. He had a medical event and, and, and was selling at a point of, of where, where he was vulnerable to, um, to, he had little leverage left effectively. And so you wanted to manage for that. That's, that's helpful. Yeah. Was there something else you mentioned? So the podcast, what else was, was helpful? The other thing that was helpful is the microconf community. We spoke about how Rob Walling has the conference. There's also a Slack community. And within that community, there's a buy-sell channel where people would often talk about as they were going through either side of the equation. And I was able to reach out to some, some other founders there and ask them about their experience. I was also part of a, a mastermind group through microconf and that that was really helpful in having two guys, Jordan and Michael, that I've been meeting with for the last three years or so. They've helped me to get the business to this point. 
and they helped me to, to stay sane during the acquisition process as well, allowing me to vent and giving me ideas. That's great. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Rob Walling, uh, we referenced earlier in this podcast does a podcast called startups for the rest of us. And his micro conf is both a face-to-face conference, a, a virtual conference and a Slack channel among other things and, and all great resources for entrepreneurs to check out. So please, uh, check out Rob. He's also got a, a relatively active Twitter following. You can, um, we'll put that all in the show notes. Um, last question. Tell me you bought yourself something ridiculous, something to commemorate this amazing achievement to, to be a, a trophy to, uh, to look at for, uh, the success of selling this company. Well, I really love cross country skiing and it had been my dream to have some kind of residence on the mountain. Didn't, my wife wouldn't let me buy an actual dwelling, but I bought myself a ski club membership and I'm going there in a week and a bit. I'm really looking forward to that, to being able to spend more time at the snow. Wait, there's cross country skiing in Melbourne, Australia. Where? Not necessarily in Melbourne, but at Falls Creek, which is about five hours away. It's not necessarily amazing compared to mountains in North America or Europe, but it's pretty good by Australian standards. Tell your wife you're good for the ski house. Um, you should go ahead and invest. I think that's amazing. In the meantime, enjoy your cross-country skiing. I think that'll be fantastic. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And I hope uh, you remember this achievement on, uh, on your skis. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you about the company you have now, because I think this could be very cool for a lot of the entrepreneurs that listen to this show. Tell me about focusbear.io what is this mm. so i'm this is a, a side project that i'm basically using to help myself to deal with work-life balance challenges because with smooth messenger i'm i'm still doing the level two support and because a lot of the customers are, are in the us i'm often having to wake up quite early and i'm finding that my my mental attitude isn't that great. If I get straight out of bed and I go straight to emails, I'm likely to be less patient. So focus there. It's an app where I'm not allowed to open emails until I've done meditation first, essentially. It takes over the computer and until I do a series of positive habits, I can't use any other app. And then it also helps me to stay focused throughout the day. So if anyone has similar work-life balance challenges, I'd love for them to be beta customers of the app. That's fantastic. Okay, so we'll we'll link up to focusbear.io in the show notes of Built Cell Radio. Um, Jeremy, this was great. Thanks for doing it. Thanks very much, John. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Jeremy Nagel. If you enjoyed today's podcast, as always, be sure that you're subscribed to Built to Sell Radio. If you love today's podcast, then please share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly benefit from listening to today's podcast. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms that were referenced, you can go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at Built to Sell. Now, if you know of someone who would be a great guest for Built to Sell Radio, then you can actually nominate them. You can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you can either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. 
And finally, thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring this content to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, visit valuebuilder.com. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 